0: Hey, this is Joel Allen, the host of Biblical Conversations, honest conversation about difficult aspects of the Bible. Biblical Conversations is an invitation to a new way of thinking about Scripture. Typically, we come to Scripture looking for answers or to find wisdom, the word of the Lord, or to find insight into the human condition. And while those are great questions to ask of Scripture, this podcast is about a new way of thinking about the Bible, a new way of looking at Scripture as an extended series of conversations, biblical conversations, conversations that are often in conflict and just as often finding conflict resolution. The Bible, like Jesus himself, is fully human and fully divine. And here we're going to explore the human side of this equation as a portal to deeper appreciation and deeper insight into the Bible as the very Word of God. The Bible was written by many different people with different ideas and different agendas. The authors of Scripture were people like you and me about the task of understanding this Yahweh who led them up out of Egypt and into the land of promise and who comes to us in the person of Jesus, our Christ. The Bible, as a fully human document, conveys ideas about God that are in conflict with other ideas about God in the Bible. The Bible is a human story about how these ancient people of faith with conflicting notions and competing understandings learned how to resolve conflicts and develop communities built on shalom. And this is why this is so important. We still live in community and we still have conflict. Conflict that's getting worse by the day. We still seek shalom. We need to find shalom, God's peace. There's an art to learning to live within the bonds of peace and by divine grace in blessed community. And I believe that the most exalted, at least for me, the most transformative way we can experience the scriptures as as the very words of God is to grapple with them in all their humanity. I've come to love the Bible even more passionately as God's word because it comes to us in the dust of history, the grind of politics, and the gore of warfare. It conveys a history generated by people of faith on a complex and meandering journey of redemption and grace. The words of these particular people have become for us the very word of God, the word of God for the people of God, Thanks be to God for this unspeakable gift, a gift that points the way toward reclaiming blessed communities of shalom today and to God's eternal kingdom. Are you up for a new way of engaging in the holy scriptures of our faith? Let's have a biblical conversation. Hey, this is Joel Allen, the host of Biblical Conversations, an honest conversation about difficult aspects of the Bible. In this particular episode, we're going to be looking at the notion of biblical inspiration and how we understand it. How can we understand the way biblical inspiration works? So there are going to be three aspects of this podcast. and the first, we're going to look at one particular problem that biblical inspiration is going to have to deal with. One of my seminary professors used to say that any view of inspiration that you might have needs to be able to survive actually reading the text. So this is an actual reading the text. Here's a problem the text uh, presents to us. How do we deal with it? Can your view of inspiration deal with that? So we'll present the issue, and then we're going to look at four different views of inspiration and kind of critique them. And then we're going to look at my view, which is kind of a three-legged stool. Again, it's not really my view. I've just gotten the ideas from other people, and I'm very happy to share who I got these ideas from. I mentioned a few names, but um, but that's the way this works. I do want to encourage you to rate and review and share this with friends, subscribe, all that stuff. Uh, it's very important uh, to me. That it helps me to kind of get the word out. I do think this is kind of a unique podcast every pastor has a podcast now, it seems, uh, or the pastor, pastors of larger churches. There's just tons and tons and tons of Bible-related podcasts. But I do think this one's kind of unique. If you know of another one that's similar, uh, you know, We're Not Like Bible Project. I love Bible Project, but We're Not Like Them. Uh, Naked Bible, We're Not Like Them. Um, and there's some other good podcasts that are out there that I like. But, uh, but I do think this is unique, and it's different, and and uh, so I hope that you enjoy it. So there we go. This is uh, called The Devil in the Bible. Uh, what about biblical inspiration? And so here we go. Uh, thanks a lot for listening. Okay, so our problem passage, the passage that we're going to, or passages that we're going to look at are first found in Second Samuel chapter 24. Second samuel chapter twenty four and we 'll just read the first few verses and uh, and we'll find that when 1 Chronicles tells the same story, it makes some pretty significant changes in it. Okay, so 2 Samuel chapter 24, just the first few verses, I'm gonna be reading out of the New Revised Standard Version. So uh, this story takes place toward the end of David's life. Uh, David, in this story, initiates a census to count all the people of Israel and Judah, and it's one of his very great blunders. He's God's hand-picked leader. It's said of him repeatedly that he is uh, a man after God's own heart but here he makes right toward the end of his minister uh, end of his uh, kingship he makes a major blunder and God uh, sends a plague as a result to wipe out much of Israel's population so again the story appears in 2 Samuel 24 and then again in First Chronicles 21 Again, so this is the uh, uh, 2 Samuel 24, 1 through 4. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he, this would be the Lord, incited David against them, that would be Israel, saying, go count the people of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the commanders of the army who were with him, go throughout all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, that's from north to south, and take a census of the people so that I may know how many there are. But Joab said to the king, "May the Lord, your God, increase the number of the people a hundredfold while the eyes of my Lord the King can still see it, but why does the Lord my, the King, my Lord the King, want to do this? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army, so Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to take a census of the people of Israel. So there we are. That's the story. And uh, we will uh, uh, begin to kind of negotiate what how it works, what its meaning is. So why is the Lord angry at Israel? The text doesn't say. The text is just completely, uh, has no explanation. And there are places in the Bible. In fact, the Bible has kind of a narrative style that uh, leaves certain aspects out of the narrative. So you have to kind of come and really make you it makes you kind of problem solve and uh, makes it so there's kind of a narrative style actually the bible project has some great information on this the narrative style of the bible to leave things unanswered to leave you scratching your head going what's going on here Um, and but this is a big one right why is the lord uh, angry against Israel, the text just doesn't say. And why does God incite David to do something sinful? And what's sinful about it? Right? We could imagine, like, uh, like it, uh, taking a census doesn't seem sinful, but maybe in this case, uh, it would be it would represent a lack of faith on David's part because he's got to go figure out exactly how to tax people or how to raise an army from different regions. So he needs to know exactly how many people live in each town. So maybe it's seen in some way as uh, abuse his authority as a king but the text again doesn't say it so it leaves these major things out of the story right why is this so bad but To prove that it really is bad to take the census, David later in the story admits his fault in having done it. It says in verse 10, but afterwards David was stricken to the heart because he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I have done. So David recognizes that this is a sin, even though we don't really know what's so sinful about it. But now, uh, I'm continuing on with David's words. But now, O Lord, I pray you, take away the guilt of your servant for I I have done very foolishly. So in this story, Israel remains kind of innocent uh, the people of Israel and Judah. Um, and even in verse 17, King David says, these people, what have they done, right? So the people of Israel and Judah are not really, they haven't done anything wrong, but, uh, but King David is one that bears the full brunt of the blame. So there we are. That's the first story that leaves us with all these questions. But the real Serious question, and what the focus of this podcast or this episode is about is the fact that there's a major, major shift when we look at First Chronicles. Now you know that First Chronicles is a retelling of uh, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, with a focus on only the south. So they retell the stories that are in the uh, older um, uh, uh, historical books, but they tell them from the focus of the southern part of israel judah because the north has been long gone when the and and most scholars date this very late so there's a lot of time lapse there uh that's it's uh actually maybe early hellenistic uh when a great israeli scholar sarah Yafet that dates this that late. So it, it, it's a retelling of these old stories with a little bit of a different uh, perspective on things. But when we start this, immediately something just jumps off the page at you that it's very different. And that is that, in a, and again, I'm reading from the Uh, New Revised Standard Version, it says, Satan stood up against Israel and incited David to count the people of Israel. So David said to Job and the commanders of the army, go, number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report so I might know their number. But Joab said, may the Lord increase the number of his people a hundredfold. Are they not my Lord the king, all of them but my Lord's servants? Why then should my Lord require this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? But the king 's words prevailed against Joab, so Joab departed and went throughout Israel and came back to Jerusalem. So this story has some minor differences in one instance uh, the the people of Israel are are accounted as more having more guilt here it says israel 's guilt is incited by David uh, but so there's some minor differences between the two, but there 's one absolutely major difference, and that is that Satan replaces Yahweh, right? In the first story, it's the, it's the Lord incites David to do this. And in this case, it says Satan. It doesn't say Ha Satan in Hebrew. It just says Satan, which some people feel like means more that it's a personality. It's a person rather than just kind of an, off, an officer. So let's talk about the idea of Satan. Here we have suddenly Satan has entered the story. Now, clearly, the chronicler is trying to save the Lord's reputation here as to, like, who would incite Israel to do evil acts? So if you're going to ask someone, who's going to incite someone to do bad things? Is it going to be God or the devil? Well, people are going to say the devil, right? So, um, so, it, so, the, so now the, the, the chronicler makes that shift from the Lord to the devil as the one more likely to do this. But who really is this Satan, this Satan figure? And how could he have replaced God, self? How could that have happened? It seems so sheer uh, lunacy almost to think of just taking the, uh, the, the name of the Lord out of a section of the Bible and just throwing in the devil. Now, most scholars do believe that this is not like the traditional devil that we think of, like this being of incarnate evil who's the master of demons. This, that's, it's not that kind of figure. So it's not quite like it may seem on first reading. Uh, the, this idea of there being a devil originally seems to be like a heavenly adversary in fact the common english bible translates this translates what's in hebrew satan as the heavenly adversary as a member of what you would call the divine council and this is tasked to bring charges to test god's people there's a great podcast out there called the naked bible and um the the uh, Michael Heisner, the scholar that uh, does that podcast, spends a lot of time talking about the notion of there being a divine council and the implications of that. So I'd suggest you'd go there. To, even his website has some great videos on the divine council. So uh, so, but here we have a being that's probably not like sheer evil, but a little bit of a different understanding. So. Uh, Let's just back up a little bit. In early Israelite theology, God was the source of both good and bad. There was no devil, no evil, no demons in the Bible. God is the source of both good and bad. And you can look at 1 Samuel 16, 14 for an example of that. 1 Samuel sixteen fourteen but um, but eventually, and so so first uh, second, the second Samuel passage may be working from that understanding, that paradigm that both evil and good ultimately come from God, but eventually there began to be in Israel an understanding of there being a different character who shows up in some of the late literature, um, so we have in Job and Zechariah, uh, in instances where this figure this satan figure uh starts to appear and he's not the devil exactly he's called one of the elim or sons of god one of these uh figures that is also quasi-independent he's kind of a divine adversary and that's the way the reason why common english bible translates it that way but in hebrew it's satan it's the satan uh, or or Satan, not the Satan, and so um, and so this shift arises that uh, that later Israelites begin to understand there being this other character, not sheer evil, but like a, an accuser, a tester, a tempter. So imagine yourself. Let's say you work in a factory. Uh, I used to work in uh, the the Deerdorf Camera Factory in Chicago. My uh, grandfather's Merle Deerdorf, a famous uh, American photographer, and developed a whole type of camera. And I used to work in that factory uh, with my grandpa and, um, and solder things. and do. So I, I can remember working day, you know, day after day, soldering a, a certain part and creating a pile of pieces. So imagine if my grandpa came across and grabbed a few of them and just started beating them with a hammer. And I'd be like, what are you doing? I've been working to, you know, what are you doing? He's saying, I'm just testing to make sure you're doing it right. So that would be kind of like this tempter tester figure in not not uh, he's quasi independent. He's not directly under God's control, but kind of there and can cooperate with God when need be. And so in Job, that's the way that he works. Right. So um, so but the still what we see here is shocking that there's a shift. What Yahweh is said to do is now said to be the work of this Satan figure. And it's a shocking shift. And what we're going to do in this uh, podcast is look at how we can understand something like that. How can we understand such a clear shift in thinking that a, a person could go from thinking the Lord did something to the same story saying that, that satan did it not not the way we think of the devil really but more the this divine tempter and it eventually becomes the devil right that idea that eventually becomes the devil so i'm calling this podcast the devil and the bible uh, maybe i should say satan and the bible maybe that would be more accurate but, uh, but the point is that this idea of the devil is shifting over time. And in the intertestamental period, it becomes more sheer evil. And when you get to the New Testament, the devil appears or, or the demons are under the control of this demonic force who appears in the book of Revelation as a dragon coming out of the pit of hell. So... So there we are. There's a shifting idea about Satan and the devil in the Bible. You can watch the shift taking place, and how can we account for that if we believe the Bible is the Word of God? How do we understand that the meaning of that? What does it mean if God's opinion is changing on things? How could that possibly be the Word of God? And so, what we're going to do in the next section is look at three different. Um, three different ways of understanding biblical inspiration that, uh, or in several different ways, and then I'll propose my uh, theory that I hope is helpful for you. So, What we're going to do at this point is look at several of the options that are out there as to different ways people have understood the the inspiration of the Bible. In other words, what are the various opinions that we kind of have to choose from or that are often chosen from? Because I think you'll see that uh, the direction I go is a little different from the way others have gone. Although, as I have said already, it's not like I'm just crafting my opinion up out of the air. I really do... uh, have developed it in conversation with other people that are way further down this road than I am and much smarter and know much more about this. But, um, but so what we're going to do is we're going to look at, uh, at different examples and then we're going to ask the question, would that example have have helped us in dealing with this Yahweh-Satan paradigm shift? That, or let's say the Yahweh heavenly adversary paradigm shift, because as we said, Satan, Satan here probably doesn't mean Satan in the di- diabolical sense. It's kind of the older way that Satan was understood as like this quasi independent tester, tempter uh, person, uh, spiritual being, but uh, in divine, like, one of the part of the divine council but not fully evil either, but kind of quasi-independent, asking all the hard questions being. So that's probably what we're dealing with in First Chronicles 21, but, uh, but, um, but we're gonna use that paradigm shift just the same, as a way to kind of think about which of these theories seem to work best. So the first theory that we're going to talk about is the neo-orthodox view and so we could say in a sense that this is we're starting on kind of the left one of the more progressive views and then we're going to do a right view and then a left view and a right view but kind of work our way in toward the center. So that's kind of the way we're going to do this. So this is the neo-orthodox view, the view made famous by Karl Barth and Emil Brunner, uh, very well-known and well-respected uh, theologians that uh, had a huge huge impact on 20th century uh, theology. Um, uh, Karl Barth was a anti-Nazi theologian, one of the theologians. There are so many theologians that were under Hitler's sway and were uh, enthusiastic Nazis, most famously Gerhard Kittel. But uh, Karl Barth was not. He was of anti-Nazi till the day he died and was close friends with uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and and kind of a, a spiritual encouragement and spiritual parent almost to uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So this view emphasizes, as uh, Bonhoeffer's theology and others have emphasized, divine tra- transcendence versus human frailty. It emphasizes the frailty of our human understanding of things, but God as a God of complete transcendence that can overwhelm us and bring us into a state of grace whereby we understand in flashes of inspiration the deep truth of God. And so he believed that people, as people experienced God, they recorded those experiences. People had overwhelming experiences of God. The writers of the Bible think of Amos as he describes this lion roaring, um, which is his way of talking about the way the word of God sounded to him. and uh, And so he recorded those experiences. But according to the, uh, the Neo-Orthodox view, Scripture shouldn't be thought of as exactly God's Word, but more something that bears witness to encounters with God. So for these uh, writers, the Scriptures, what they wrote, wasn't equivalent to the Word of God, but bore witness to the Word of God. So a lot of the Scriptures are just very human. You know, you'll have. So-and-so wrote this in the period of when Uzziah was the king and these uh, things that are all over the Bible that don't necessarily, they're just human contrivances and uh, artifacts, but they're not anything specifically divine. It's just someone up there kind of editing and doing the editorial work of a scribe, and those are not divinely inspired, but there are moments in Amos and Hosea and other prophets or all the Bible uh, not just moments, but there are you know, God, these encounters with God where when we read the Bible, we, we, we can kind of similarly encounter God by the power of the Spirit. The same Spirit that was in the moment for that writer can inspire us so that we have similar encounters with God through the reading of Scripture. But again, Scripture isn't God's Word for the Neo-Orthodox. Scripture contains God's words, but it's not God's Word specifically. God's word is there and you have to be listening in the spirit to hear it, but it's not exactly God's word. And so people will say of this tradition, so I used to have a pastor friend that would always say, instead of when he'd read scripture, he would never say, listen for the word of God. I'm sorry, he would never say, listen to the word of God. He would always say, listen for the word of God. And that's key difference. Listen for the word of God. Uh, It tells the whole story almost. So uh, another friend of mine who didn't like this uh, theory, this view, uh talked about who he used to joke with me a lot he was uh, on the faculty of a seminar of a college where i taught and he was a, he didn't like this view. he was a philosopher there he's a baptist philosopher actually and he would come down and he'd go joel how do you know when to spot the spots so that was his joke you know so with this new orthodox view he says you know who gets the privilege of spotting the spots we call that spot inspiration in other words the bible is inspired in spots and who gets the privilege of spotting the spots <laughs> which is a bit of a problem for this for this view so uh so there we are that's the orthodox view it would handle this problem pretty well because uh because the scripture is uh, on one hand, it's God's word, but on the other hand, there's much of it that's not God's word. And where it's inspired and flashes of inspiration that would be God's word. So they may be the chronicler as he's writing Chronicles and reads over this passage that is now in, Uh, 2 Samuel 24, he reads it and reads about the Lord inciting David to go and complete the census, he goes, he has this flash of inspiration, and he says, that's not the Lord, that's this Satan figure, this heavenly adversary, and so the spot inspiration would be on that change, whereby uh, the, uh, the author of Chronicles corrected the text because there was a lack of inform- lack of inspiration previously and a lack of understanding as a result so uh, there we go. That's the neo-Orthodox view on the other side of the ex- of the spectrum. So this is, well, maybe the more extreme side on the left, even than the neo-Orthodox view would be the view that the Bible is just primarily a human contrivance altogether. And maybe through some poetic kinds of experiences, as someone reads it, they might ex- encounter something that is spiritually meaningful but it's not the word of God in any direct sense. The, that to the neo-Orthodox would be even further down the road to the left. That they would, the neo-Orthodox would strenuously disagree with that uh, and they would be conservative in perspective. But on the other side of the con- pe- spend, is pendulum uh, we, is the dictation theory. This is the theory of the rabbis of old. They believed that the Bible was dictated that God dictated the scripture's word for word and the writers acted as God's secretaries. The writers were completely almost like in a trance when they're writing this and they they are uh com- compo- composing these words that come directly from God. They could have fallen asleep. Uh but they were going to continue they God would have like taken their hand and cont- continued to write. Through them, so this is the extreme on the other side and um, and they rabbis believed that the Bible was not just god 's word, but the Bible was god 's word in a sense that made it w- w- different from any other word in extreme. They believed it was like like to some people when they heard the word they would have you know it would be like tasting uh honey, and to other people when they heard the word, it would be like tasting um, strawberries or whatever that in other words the word of god because it's divine word is totally different from human words it has this uh, almost magical or mystical power that uh that it can that allows it to be under, uh, interpreted a thousand different ways, and all of them can be correct at the same time. The Bible's meaning is, the Bible has omni-significance. In other words, it has meaning all the way down to the bottom. And so rabbis could look at one tiny little thing in a text that you wouldn't even know exists in English, like an et, which is a definite dr- direct object indicator. We can't even translate them, and they're all over the Bible. And so they might find an et and give it extreme meaning by, you know, maybe making those letters into numbers into uh, um, a word. Or, you know, you can do that with what's called gematria, where you can take a word and a number and make it a word. Just like 666 in Revelation means Nero. It's a reference to the emperor Nero. And so... um, so these, there, because the God, the Bible is God's word, it can, um, it has just this omni-significance. It has just loads, mountains and mountains and mountains of meaning that go that you could never exhaust with your whole life. That every little tiny jot and tittle has deep meaning, and if you know enough, you can pull meaning out of thousands of different things in the Bible, millions of different things in the Bible that uh, that someone who is just reading it wouldn't even know they existed. They wouldn't know anything about uh, the, these kinds. And so often rabbinic uh, storytelling is based on these kinds of things. They notice some little detail in the Bible and they give it a whole lot of significance. An example of this is when uh, when uh, uh, Rachel is coming back from her uh, ancestor's home to, he's, she's uh, being brought by Eliezer to meet her husband, uh, um, Isaac, and I don't have, that just came to my mind right now, so I'd, I have to get the text out. I can't even think of exactly where in Genesis it lies. But in that story, it says, the Hebrew literally says, she fell off her camel. Now, the Hebrew, the word nafal in Hebrew can mean to jump off quickly. But because they, the text actually says she fell off her camel, what does that mean? Well, she must have had a vision of, of uh, Esau and Jacob in her womb, struggling, and that Esau would the, this one who would become the father of a you know, evil, yeah, Esau eventually represents Rome, the government of Rome, and so that she was so horrified by the thought of having Esau in her womb, she fell off her camel. So, I mean, it's a silly little story and, uh, you know, no one would probably take it that seriously. But it's based on the unusual use of the verb nafal. But any modern scholar would tell you nafal can mean just to jump off something very quickly. And that's probably what it means here. But uh, rabbis can give it way loads of meaning because they believe that the Bible is not only dictated, it's dictated by a God whose speech is totally different from human speech. And so, uh, so human speech is is very flat and you know one or two meanings. But in biblical in divine speech, it's just like like I said, just mountains and mountains of meaning in every word. The problem with this view is that when you read um, the different prophets, uh, it, the, they sound so different from each other. In other words, if God was speaking directly. Through them, and they were just dictating word for word exactly what God wanted them to know and say. Then you would think that Hosea and Isaiah and Amos would all sound the same because they are—they're—it's—they're uh, they're not really speaking anything. They're not writing anything. It's God doing all the writing through them. And so this is one of the traditional problems of this view. But also this view would not be able to handle well the problem we're talking about. Because if God wrote both 1 Chronicles 21 and 2 Samuel 24, then God would have known that it was God who incited David to sin and not the devil or not this uh, uh, heavenly adversary creature. So so there we are. This view is... uh, is very um, uh, places a huge amount of emphasis on the detailed inspiration of the Bible and that God dictated it specifically, but it has a problem with answering some of the things that we have been talking about in this podcast. So that's the second view, the one on the right extreme. If we want to go one step in on the, uh, on the left side, you could say that you'd find the limited inspiration theory. And the limited inspiration spirit theory is the idea that God inspired the thoughts of biblical writers, but not necessarily the individual words. God gave them uh, complete freedom to express their thoughts in any way they wanted. But because of this, uh, the matter, in matters of historical detail, they can include errors or intentional alterations. So there may be errors in the Bible in the sense that this person has experienced something of God and they want to communicate it. But they're putting it completely into their own words, and as people putting it into their own words as humans at that in that process, they are going to of course sometimes make uh, errors which uh, which are um, uh, which can be seen in the, the kind of thing that we're talking about or the just various historical errors in the bible so um, I, I, this theory doesn't do much for me either I just don't think it gives us much in terms of uh, inspiration and authority. It's hard for me to understand how this could, like, it has kind of the spotting the spots problem, and uh, it just doesn't seem to make sense in terms of providing really a, a solid foundation in terms of, uh, of the Bible having kind of an, of an eternal authoritative message that, uh, that is um, in operation at all times. So on the other side of the spectrum, coming a little bit further in from from the uh, dictation theory, is plenary verbal. The plenary verbal inspiration. This is by far the most well known and beloved insp- uh, view of inspiration. I've read about you know years ago. I remember reading about this in theology textbooks. So the word plenary refers to full or complete. It's complete inspiration, and the the verbal means that's down to the actual words, the specific words of the Bible are inspired. And so this view says that God inspired the entire Bible down to the exact words and details, but God did it in a way that, that God could work through their personality. God could work through their knowledge. God didn't kind of overwhelm them in the sense of divine dictation, but God does know in detail how their personality works. And God flows through their personality, so that every single word they write, every single word any of the biblical writers wrote, is exactly inspired the way God intends it to be. And so that's uh, this theory um, uh, believes that they act, act, sorry, they accurately and freely chose to write exactly what God desired. So God desired it down to the details. God knew exactly what God wanted them to write. But they, um, but they were doing that with freedom, as they wrote, so the problem with this view, and this view doesn't do much for me either. I used to hold this view because I had been taught it, but, uh, but I no longer hold this view because it just doesn't seem to account it deals it, it, it focuses on this one problem, the one problem of. Different writers of the Bible having such different ways of writing that are unique to themselves. I mean, a good example is Amos and Hosea, where Hosea is writing through this pain and the experience of his, uh, the fact that his wife um, uh, Gomer has become a prostitute, and he uses that experience of Gomer as a prostitute to uh, as a way to uh, understand what the problem with Israel is. The problem with Israel is adultery. They're committing adultery when they worship idols. And so that experience becomes the sieve through which he understands the word of God. And yet Amos is so different. Amos is is not concerned about idolatry so much, but he's concerned about the treatment of the poor and the injustice in the land. And he speaks with such power and passion on those issues. They're both in the, you know, uh, writing in in the North dealing with Israel about the same time around 760, I believe. And and so they're both in the same period of time, both uh, in the same, in, in the Northern part of Israel. And specifically preaching against the Jeroboam too and the the um, the the um, priest at that time uh, Amaziah, I think his name was i'd have to check in Amos well, that's the pl- place where Amos says famously i'm not i a, a um, i'm not a prophet nor a son of a prophet, which is kind of funny from our vantage point because he's one of our prophets but um But the point here is that Amos and Hosea had very different styles and God... So this theory focuses on that problem. And okay, let's give it a, you know, fine that you solved that problem. But because God probably knows their personality and can work through them in ways that suit their personality. Okay. Fine, but that's just one of the problems, right? The main problem that we're facing here is the difficulty with the fact that there are places where the Bible just seems to contradict itself. And in some of the writing that by people that hold this view, they say that the Bible never contradicts itself. And I just kind of wonder, you know, what Bible are you reading, right? My Bible is full of contradictions and some of them end up being, you know, paradoxes and not contradictions, but some of them are contradictions like this one. Right, this is a clear contradiction. I mean, somewhat, you know, you could try to argue against it. Of course, you could, but it would be strained and a painful argument. Uh, it really does seem like we just have a difference of opinion about who incited David to carry out this census. So, plenary verbal has just never really worked for me. I, I feel like you end up with a Bible that is uh, way too uh, wooden. And, as uh, Billy Abraham points out uh, and I mentioned he said, said he was at Garrett theological Seminary he, he I think he's he was at Perkins. I don't know if he's retired yet, but at any rate, uh, Billy Abraham in one of his great books on inspiration, talks about how this theory really does end up being dictation. I mean it seems you can use this language about God working through their personality but it's basically fancy gussied up way to talk about uh dictation theory. So those are the uh the four I guess I gave you five views uh on different ways to understand in- inspiration but my problem with all of them is that they're thinking about they th- they're uh I have two problems. One is that the the issue has there are several different layers that we have to think about. And so I I would like to propose a theory that has kind of three different uh, aspects to it that have to be held in tension at all times, right? So it's kind of like a three-legged stool, the view that I want to come up with. And uh, the, these uh, views deal primarily with process. You know, what was it like for the person who experiences God's revelatory light. Uh, what was that like for them? How did they process it? How did God work through that? And I think we need a, a more nuanced set of factors than a simply this is how it happened. I think we need to look more at outcome than process. So um, so there we are. Uh, that's, those are the views that I'd like to go over or that I have gone over. And now we're going to shift into another section where I will begin to lay out the way that I think Biblical inspiration, the way that it makes most sense to me. So I'm going to use the metaphor of a three-legged stool for Biblical inspiration. As We don't use stools very much anymore, but uh, you can just imagine if you've never really sat on a stool. We use stools today, of course, but they're usually four legs. But the old, in the old days, he used to make three-legged stools and so very often the three-legged stool is like a metaphor for three ideas that have to be in place for this thing to work that, so that it gives you stability. If you have two legs, you're going to fall over. If you have one leg, you're going to really fall over. If you have four, well, you don't really need four. You can sit comfortably on three. And so the three legs of the stool, I'm going to just tell you what they are and then we'll go back up and look at them more specifically. So this the the observation that I'd like to make is that the nature of Revelation demands three aspects. One is that Revelation is progressive. Revelation is kind of like a light that gets brighter. We've already talked about this in earlier episodes. So Revelation is kind of like a light that gets brighter. So you uh, walk into a room and and you see something in the corner and it looks really scary and then the there, but it's dark in there and you can just barely see it. And then the light starts to get brighter and you realize it's not a bear, it's just a, a chair and a book. And so you um, realize that there's nothing to be frightened of, but that l- the light had to get brighter. And in the Bible, you see the light getting brighter over a very long period of time. And sometimes it seems like it is, sometimes it seems like it isn't. There are debates that go on and on and on. But at any rate, uh, The progressive revelation is something like that. I know that uh, Eric Seibert in his wonderful book, Disturbing Divine Behavior, rejects um, uh, this idea of progressive revelation, uh, but yet I thought he ended up kind of in progressive revelation anyway. And so something like progressive revelation has been thought of, uh, people have thought about this for many years. I did a a lot of, when I was doing my PhD, I did a lot of work in patristic writing. And very often in patristic writing, you come across, in Irenaeus and uh, even in Augustine, you come across this idea that's pretty much uh, progressive revelation. So this is not a, a new radical idea. It's something that Christians have talked about for many years, that there's something like progressive relation at least between the old testament and the new right we the new testament has a little bit of a different take on the relationship with god that emphasizes grace perhaps a little bit more uh grace is certainly there in the hebrew scriptures but um but a little bit more of an emphasis on that a little bit of a different way of seeing how the pieces of the puzzle fit together and of course from the christian perspective we'd say that's new light so uh, so progressive revelation, there we are. That's the first stool, first uh, leg. The second leg is what I call didactic inspiration or pedagogical inspiration. In other words, the inspiration of the Bible is like a teacher that inspires or a teaching that inspires. So when, let's say that you uh, go to hear a great speaker and the speaker is just knocks the ideas out of the ballpark, he just is so inspiring and and you come away and you just feel so enthused like you and you meet someone that wasn't there and they say, well, what did the speaker say? And you're like, oh, OK, what did they say? And so you have to kind of put it out there in your best, using your best memories. But you, of course, are going to use some of your thoughts. You're going to you know put your spin on it because you can't help but do that but you try to communicate what the person is saying. This sounds a little bit like limited inspiration that we just talked about, but it's different from that because the way I'm describing this is that if you hadn't heard the teacher, then you might wanna sit down with three or four people and say, okay, what did the teacher say? And that you could take notes. And so this person would have this kind of angle, this person would have this kind of angle, this person would have this kind of angle, and they'd all be different, right? Uh, But you could pretty well figure out what the teacher said by listening to all the different people that you know and kind of sorting it out so that they by consistent themes, right? So if there's a consistent theme, there, then you you can be pretty sure if two or three people say the same thing, then you can be pretty sure that that's something that the teacher actually said. And so, rather than just having limited inspiration, I'm emphasizing that limited inspiration works this way: that we that they, each person did have to use their own knowledge, their own words. God does not like d- inspire this down to the words, right? They they have to use their own knowledge, their own words. And yet when they do, we can pretty well parse out what God said by listening to all the voices that are all the people that are inspired, that are moved. So didactic inspiration, that word means inspiration that's like that of a teacher. It's a teaching inspiration. And the reason why I use didactic inspiration is because it's that experience that you have when you are inspired by something you've learned and you try to share that with someone else. You have to put it into your own words, but so the person that wasn 't there to hear the original speaker has to listen to several different voices. You have to listen to Amos and Hosea and Isaiah and Micah, and then you can really and they all have similar messages, and you can listen to those messages and kind of put together an understanding of what the original uh, speaker must have said. So that's a teacher that inspires. And then the last uh, stool is what I call narrative authority. Actually, I don't call it that. and this is, uh, so just so you know, Progressive Revelation, I've kind of got that idea all over the place, namely in early Christian writers. Didactic Inspiration is an idea that I picked up from, um, the explanation of it is like that in uh, William Ab- Billy Abraham's book, one of his books on inspiration, I forget the title. And uh, and the Narrative Authority is a concept that I picked up from N.T. Wright, an incredible biblical scholar who uh, has a, had a, a profound influence on me. And so um, so uh, narrative authority is the idea that the authority of the scripture is at the level of its broader narrative. So the scriptures have different narrative scopes. The Jewish Bible is in a different order than the Christian Bible. They call it the Tanakh and Tanakh refers to the order Torah, the first books of Moses. Nevi'im, the uh, former and latter prophets, and then Ketuvim, the book of writing. So it ends with the book of Chronicles. So the Hebrew Bible ends with Chronicles. The Christian Old Testament, of course, ends with prophets because we're telling a different story. We need to have prophets next to the gospel so we can have prophecy made, prophecy fulfilled. And of course, Jewish people aren't believing that Jesus is Messiah. They want Ezra at the end of their Bible because their Bible is moving toward the rabbis. And so their Bible is ordered to put Ezra at the end, who's the kind of beginning of the rabbinic movement. And so their Bible is structured to tell the story of the rabbis, and the Christian Bible is structured to tell the story of Jesus and Jesus' redemptive power and influence, ending with revelation and the new kingdom that is achieved by the power of the suffering lamb, the lamb who's uh, sacrificed. And so the Christian Bible is completely... Written in the order or, or the shape of the order of the Bible is structured around the Christian story that we're telling so um, so the the that broader narrative for us the the power of the Bible is this deep narrative, the story that it tells, and the deep narrative is you know this story of God's creating the world and creating us in His image, and we fall from grace and God coming to us through. Uh, Abraham and then God sending Moses with the law and delivering the people from Egypt and and the the difficulties that the kings had following the law and the prophets come on the scene and tell the scene and tell the kings that they've got to you know keep faithful to the covenant but God has a promised Messiah that's going to come that will redeem us and so the biblical narrative from the Christian vantage point is leading up to Jesus and Jesus is the center of the narrative so and that's the narrative of redemption that should drive our lives our lives and and i should say for me this is what's particularly powerful because i believe that narrative i this is what makes me a christian right i actually believe our narrative i genuinely believe that god was in christ reconciling the world to himself and that christ will come again and redeem what 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 christ purchased at the cross and that the world will truly be put to rights I believe that narrative, and that's what makes me a Christian. It's the narrative, and I live my life into that narrative, and so the authority of the Bible comes at the level of narrative. So let's back up and talk about progressive revelation as a light getting brighter. So think of our example here. Earlier in Israel, there was no concept of Satan. All good and evil came from God. And as the idea of Satan developed, it originated with this kind of divine counsel trickster, this semi-autonomous trickster and then that idea eventually developed into more satan as the as the devil incarnate or the leader of the demons and that's an intertestamental thing that idea isn't even in the hebrew scriptures and so that's clearly revelation getting brighter thoughts developing over time and this can be a very human process this can be like people arguing and debating and trying to figure out what the right is and god leading even through those kinds of debates of that very human rational process and then didactic inspiration—that uh, it's similar to, as I said, limited inspiration. But limited inspiration is, uh, or inspiration comparable to inspiration that we know. or Let me back up and say, this didactic inspiration is similar to the inspiration we know from education. And uh, so, so that when we are dealing with the Bible, we're dealing with a text that is uh, that. Where people are trying to figure out and put this into their own words, the experience, the encounter, the truths they've learned from God, and so uh, the the value of this theory though is it or the, the didactic inspiration part of it is that it really helps us to say what is at the core of the gospel of the Bible what is the co- what are the core messages that the Bible has and, to say and the value of that is that uh, that we always get into theological trouble when we Get away from the core when we start emphasizing that which is not central, and didactic inspiration reminds us of that. And we can uh, and and so the writers of the Bible have to put things into their own. Vantage point, their own understanding of things god doesn 't tell them specifically how this worked, but from their vantage point, they think that God inspired or incited David to commit this sin in 1 samuel twenty four or second samuel twenty four so uh, so didactic inspiration works it allows for that human component to exist and to function, and narrative authority um, is uh, the idea that the scripture takes this deeply narrative Perspective and that the canon has this massive storyline. God created a world and made us image bear- bearers, but we fell from grace and we fell into abusive modes of being. But God worked through a specific family, and then God sent a lawmaker Moses, and God sent prophets, and then God, at the pinnacle of Revelation, sent God's own son. That This it seems to be the way Jesus looked at uh, at inspiration because Jesus, uh, in the uh, Mark chapter 12, actually it's in all the synoptic gospels, Jesus tells the parable of the wicked tenants. And I planned on reading the whole thing, but this is going a little bit long. But in that parable, Jesus, if you want to take a look at it, Mark chapter 12, right at the first few verses, in that parable, Jesus actually... Kind of summarizes the whole history of Israel, but puts himself at the head of it uh, the, as if all of israel is is this broad story of God sending uh, prophets to make to keep Israel right and to keep them on the on the path, but they keep stoning and killing the prophets, and finally God sends god 's own son, which clearly Jesus is referring to himself there. And so, uh, so it shows Jesus has this kind of consciousness of having come from God, which is remarkably important. But it also shows that Jesus sees the whole Bible as this broad storyline, which comes to its pinnacle and climax in the work that Jesus is doing. And so, uh, so Mark chapter 12, the parable of the wicked tenants, shows that Jesus is operating from this kind of narrative, the deep narrative of Scripture uh, idea. So, um, So again, the three-legged stool. I think all of these are important. You need to have progressive revelation as a way to understand the way revelation itself works. It's like a light that gets brighter over time. It's not like you know, sheets of gold coming down out of heaven with perfect philosophy inscribed on them. It's not that way. It's a very human process that takes a long period of time, but light is getting brighter. And secondly, it's like inspiration of a teacher that inspires you, but you have to put it in your own words. And everybody's having to put it in their own words, but we can figure out what the teacher said, even if we don't hear it ourselves. By looking at the core messages of the various people that have heard had this encounter, and so we can we can just discern what the teacher is saying in um, fairly accurately, even though we didn 't hear the voice ourselves and then thirdly, the narrative authority there 's a deep structure to the Bible, a deep story it 's telling, and for Christians, that story is about Jesus at pinnacles at the cross and then uh, and then comes to its uh well, the real pinnacle is where the, the New Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, and God's kingdom comes, and God's will is done, and the kingdoms of our Lord has become the kingdoms of this world, as uh, Revelation says, have become the kingdoms of our kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. So, I think that three-legged stool functions. It's functioned very well for me over many years. It's not perfect, but it seems to work. And I hope it's helpful for you so that we can move forward with a clear understanding of the Bible being a very human text with all kinds of human disagreements and differences of opinion. And yet at the same time, it is the word of God for the people of God. So we say together, thanks be to God. Well, thanks for listening. I really appreciate your effort and your desire to learn about the inspiration of the Bible and how it might work. And I'm um, I hope that this has been helpful to you. Please contact me if you have any questions. You can contact me on Facebook. Just uh, search for Biblical Inspirations. My name is Joel Allen. You can find it there. Uh, under my name, uh, I don't know, just find it. It's biblical in conversations, and it'll come up. And um, and so, but I, I'd love to get uh, feedback. You, can, if you're using Anchor, you can use a voice message right on the app. And uh, I think I already said to rate and view. I pre- really would appreciate your your reviews. Um, uh, it just is very meaningful to me, to and it helps other people find the broadcast the podcast. Um, So there we go. Thanks a lot. If you, I teach uh, Christian leadership and, um, Biblical studies and uh, world religions and all that kind of thing at Dakota Wesleyan University. We have a great Christian leadership program and so if you're a pastor and or know of somebody that's interested in going into the ministry and wants to study on the college level, please have them look at Dakota Wesleyan University. We really uh, have a program here that I'm very, very proud of and uh, our graduates get full-ride scholarships into seminary on a regular basis or have great other ministry experiences and, uh, and so we really have a unique unique way of training students not only for Uh, for theology and understanding the Bible and that kind of thing, but also for the not-for-profit administration side in that we have a whole not-for-profit administration track, and every church is a not-for-profit administration, and a lot of pastors don't know, haven't been trained really in that side of things and how to administer the church as an institution that is not-for-profit. And so students get a great kind of double-track training here at Wesleyan, and we also, of course, there's a lot of colleges, but we really seriously are serious about getting students over overseas, uh, Peru, Africa, uh, Israel, and then we have a great campus ministry, great campus pastors. Um, So we really have a great program here. If you know of students that are interested in going to the ministry, please have them give me a call. Email me, uh, joallen at dwu.edu, or or um, come and visit us at Dakota Wesleyan. We're really wanting to see this institution become a place where uh, there are a a significant number of people whose calling is to ministry, where they can train and prepare in a way that they're Able to deal with the scriptures honestly and with the, the aware of these challenges that we're talking about in this podcast, but in a context where they're encouraged in their faith. So that's uh, what we do here at Dakota Wesleyan, and I would appreciate if you if you would uh, encourage students who you know are called to ministry to consider coming to Dakota Wesleyan. So thanks be to God. The word of God is for the people of God, and we'll close as always by saying thanks be to God.